the first question, it is said there is a happiness, an ease, a contentment, not of the senses. Can you please discuss how to discern and develop this? When we ordain and take the Upasambhada, we ordain to realize Nibbana, which translates happiness. So, letting go of this, uh, our blind attachments to Sankaras, what's left after you've let go of everything is happiness. Or you can call it peace. Like happiness, unity, you know, when we get what we want, we want something, and then we get what we want, we feel happy. That's based on getting, fulfilling our desires. And ultimate happiness is letting go of desires. So, you know, the idea sometimes Nibbana comes across as, as a high, kind of, you know, it's the highest happiness. Notice that these words, highest happiness, makes it seem far away. It's way up there. And uh, that's a, that's a limitation of language, that's why you can't, realize Nibbana through thinking about it because you're looking for the highest happiness. So, you know, this is, you know, in, in terms of translations or into Thai or English or any other language, then we're limited because language is all about the highest, the lowest, the the good, better, best, the bad, worse, worst. It's all about qualities and comparison, the best and the worst. And so we think when we're, when we're attached to language, to concepts, then we, we see everything in terms of these, of these discriminations, the words that we have, because that's the function of thought. All thoughts, all languages are sankharas. So, you know, as long as, as you try to think your way to nirvana, you'll never find it. Because thought, you know, the aim is letting go of sankharas, not finding the best sankharas. So, nirvana isn't the, like the best sankhara you can get. It's not like a, a happiness that you get what, because you, you want something and you get what you want. It's tamachad, it's natural. It's dhamma. So everything, you know, notice when I'm talking how everything, you know, through, through reflecting on all conditions are impermanent. Sapesankaranita. So, as I've said before, that includes everything. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, 
believing, opinions, views. And then mindfulness is the awareness of opinions, views, thinking, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So mindfulness or consciousness isn't a sankara. In terms of unattached consciousness or the vinyanang anidasnang anandang sapado pabang, which is the consciousness without attachments that's not conditioned by the senses. So we have sensory consciousness. So then that's what we identify with. Out of evicha ignorance, we identify with, with the sense experiences. So I, this is a body sitting here. I'm, you know, identify with it because I feel it. You know, it's, it's, uh, sensory. It's a very sensitive form to a human physical body. And it's visible. You know, I can watch it, observe it, can smell it. And so, you know, this seems more, you know, on the terms of worldly dhammas, you know, the body does seem like it's me and it's ultimately me. But notice the awareness of the body. The body's not aware of itself. It's just sankara, phenomena, empty phenomena. So what isn't an empty phenomena? An empty phenomenon at this moment is awareness, consciousness. It's not empty, it's not, doesn't have a beginning or ending. Apparent here and now, timeless. It's Dhamma, it's reality. So don't, you know, when you, in, the, in in England or in Thailand, wherever you go, you talk about Nibbana as an attainment. You know, so somebody has attained Nibbana. And that's, you know, that's like an attainment. Just that English word, attainment, is, uh, gives a sense of you, you've got to get something you don't have. You know, you're missing something. You're missing Nibbana. You're not enlightened. You, you've got a, and you read the scriptures and you hear about nibbana, you hear about enlightenment and the, and, you know, concentration practice, getting concentrated. Create this sense of wanting to get something that you've read about or somebody has talked about that you believe in, that you don't have now that you imagine that if you practice meditation, you'll get it in the future. So, Nirvana is something in the future. And if someone who's attained Nirvana is, has a, you know, has a, got something, the, the very best that you can ever get. But in terms of Dhamma, you know, you don't attain. It, meditation is all about letting go, not about attaining. 
abandoning, relinquishing, letting go. It's like the second noble truth, the insight into into the three kinds of desires to let go. Not to create, not to attain Nibbana by letting go, but letting go of desire and what's left. When you, when, when you're aware, when you're attached, when you're attached to conditions, when you're attached to yourself as a separate person, when you're attached to yourself as a physical body, the sense of me and mine is very strong. It's what, but it's thinking, isn't it? We have to think. To be a person, we have to grasp our thoughts, our memories, our views and opinions. If we let go of sankharas, let go of memories, views and opinions, the identity with the body, not that we get rid of them. It's not an annihilation or a destruction of anything. So it's not, you know, trying to destroy sankharas. But seeing the suffering involved in clinging to them out of ignorance. So through this, this is where you trust your awareness because it's the knowing in the present moment. It's like this. So you can be aware if you're obsessed with certain fears or thoughts or doubts or whatever, you know, you ask questions, you want to know the answers, you want to have answers to the questions, solutions to the problems because of the thinking process. But if you trust your awareness, you can be aware of thinking is like this or doubting is like this. And through this way of reflecting, you see the you, you know, you have insight into the dukkha you create through attachment to desires to get rid of things, desires to attain image, imaginative uh, images of uh, perfection, and the desire to get rid of sensual desires. So I always found that, you know, in terms of how oftentimes Dhamma is presented as attain, attaining stream entry, attaining arahantship, attaining nibbana, I find this quite misleading, to, you know, think, because the insights I've had, it's not about attaining. It's about letting go of what you're holding on to. So you don't get anything, you don't get Nibbana or Arahat or it's not about getting something that's missing or far away or too high. That's the thinking process. Nibbana is very high. I'm still on a coarse level of sensory desires and fears and in the see yourself create yourself as a person with fears and sensual desires and 
and still get angry and you know you when you start thinking about yourself as a person as a physical being as a separate being then the critical mind tends to see as i'm only this this you know this unenlightened confused being sitting here trying to get samadhi trying to get rid of my defilements so I'm challenging you to say, you know, this is a self-creation. You're creating this through thinking. And then trusting in awareness, this continuous, uh, you know, reminding you. Because ultimately, you've got everything. You're perfect. Your true nature is awareness, consciousness, which is impersonal, deathless. So you, you don't have to get rid, you know, you don't have to get something that you don't have. You are, it's already here and now, but we don't notice it because we're so obsessed with our defilements, our thoughts, our desires. So, like in meditation, it's investigating desire, investigating, you know, beginning to see what is aware of desire, of gamadana, sensual desire. What is it that's aware of wanting to get something, wanting to attain nibbana? Because you have to think, you know, I, I want to get something I don't have. Because we create ourselves always with these negative perceptions, these conditions, you know, that are changing. That are anatta, non-self. So to think of oneself as perfect, as a person, that's not it. There's nothing, I'm just, I'm nothing wrong with me, I've got everything. Everything can be, uh, you know, another form of, of uh, self, a kind of um, overestimating or narcissistic views about yourself and the world. But it, that's a thought too, that I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. That's still thinking. So when I say, when I give this message that you, you are perfect, it's not to be grasped as a, on a personal level, as a, as a separate individual, you know, your body's perfect, your, your thoughts, your emotions, all these are perfect, and desires are perfect. You're, you know, through awareness, we're seeing the, the suffering, the dry lakana, the three characteristics of phenomena, that they're all, their nature is unsatisfactory, it's dukkha, it's impermanent, it's constantly changing. And it's anatta, it's not any kind of permanent self-possession. You know, it's a permanent identity as a condition.
Because, you, you know, you see yourself in, you know, in different, when you're feeling healthy and and everything's going well, you, you see yourself in one way when you're sick and depressed, you see yourself in another way. What is the self that you create? The sick, depressed self or the elated, successful self? You know, the self view, the Sakya Diti is changing, it rises and ceases. And I found it quite helpful to reflect that perfection, Dhamma, Dhamma is perfect, whole, complete, no lack. So when we take refuge in Dhamma, Dhammang Sarnangachami, That's what we are. That's our. That's our. That's reality, ultimate reality. And then, you know, when we chant Buddha Atamang Sarnangachami, you know, we think of it as me. This this person, this physical being here, is taking refuge in the ultimate reality. But no, it's Bhutang Thirnangachami is the first one. Which is mindfulness. Bhuto Buddha. In this sense, we're taking refuge in awareness, in mindfulness. The Thai translation, Puru. Is is uh, is the definition in Thai of the of Bhutto of Buddha, but Puru is not quite right because there's no Pu. There's just Ru. There's just knowing. So Buddha is knowing here and now. Not knowing about things, you know, like knowing everything about everything. Like when we think of God as an omniscient, you know, in the Christian sense that God knows everything about everything. You know, so that's when we think of God as some separate force high above us that knows everything and what we're thinking and all the seven billion human beings on the planet, plus all the cats and dogs, pigs, cows, horses. Who wants to know all that? You know, do we have... It would be a mess if we, were, if we knew everything about everything. So it's knowing here and now the way it is. All conditions are impermanent, they're unsatisfactory. The unsatisfactory things are the body. It's unsatisfactory. You know, it's born, it grows up, gets old and dies. It gets sick. It's subject to so many things, to diseases and, and accidents and starvation and 
abuse from others and wars and so forth. So the body's not nibbana. You try to seek nibbana in a, through through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. These are all subject to change. You know, the conditions that are beyond our control in the universe, the stars in the sky. You know the location of the planets, the sun and moon, you know, how, you know, the, how many forces in this universe affect us all the time, these physical bodies, these, what we see here, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, you know, what is it? It seems too much to, to consider, too much to know. So in taking refuge in Buddha and Dhamma and taking refuge in awareness we realize Dhamma, the perfection because all these conditions arise and cease and change but our true nature is this awareness this is this is the gate, the door to the deathless this, this is the escape hatch, mindfulness from the power and influence of our mental states, our mental conditioning, our physical conditioning. So like aparuta desang amatasataura, the gate to the deathless is open. And when the Buddha was enlightened, he made this pronouncement. The gate to the deathless is open. What is the gate? I mean, it's awareness, mindfulness. So this word, these words, mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, they're words in themselves. But this is, at this moment, you're, you're conscious. Each individual being in this room is experiencing the same consciousness. But the conditions, the physical conditions, like what I'm feeling right now and what you're feeling right now, are different. But the unitive, the Dhamma, the deathless reality, is unitive. It's, it's where we, we realize perfection, realize Dhamma, not in the conditions, that we are experiencing through the senses, through the body. The next question is how to reconcile intuitive awareness and the notion of free will and having to make decisions in the world, in life. Well, that's like I found in experience that like having to make decisions, solve problems, answer questions, and uh, you know, I, I could see in so much of my life just the wanting an answer to every question, wanting to make the right decision, solve the problems. 
And then in meditation, you know, we're, we're not trying to solve problems or answer questions anymore or make decisions. We're just trusting in awareness. Then the decisions, answers to worldly problems can manifest for us without us, you know, just arbitrarily trying through thought, through preference, through prejudice, trying to answer questions or solve problems. We're conditioned, you know, the whole sense of the person, how the Sakyaditi is all about condition, it's programmed, it's not really what you are. You know, it's how you've been programmed. How much free will do we have with the programs we've we've acquired when we depend on just making arbitrary decisions through through the senses, through the thought process, through our personal biases, personal preferences. Is there free will on the Sakyaditi level? And when you, you know, you start observing your personality, you know, it's so conditioned, it kind of, especially as you get older, you, you find you're thinking the same old boring thoughts you thought when you were young. You know, you've got, this, you know, I used to wonder when I turned 30, I was in Malaysia, in Sabah, in the Peace Corps, and I was so utterly bored with myself by the age of 30, I thought, just, you know, I st still have emotions like a child. You know, I'm supposed to be grown up, you know, the perception of 30 then was that you're an adult, or, you know, you're really grown up. Now I think of 30 as being a mere child. <laughs> But at the age, when I reached that age, I remember thinking, am I going to have to live 30 more years just regurgitating the same old habits, these same old emotions, these kind of boring thoughts, just conditioned reactions, you know, like the pushing the button and on the computer and you you get the letter A and so forth. It's programmed. So the personality, you know, is, you know, in elderly people notice how they, they oftentimes repeat themselves endlessly. Because, you know, that's how they're programmed to, to do it. You say this and they, they say the same old thing every, time so and you hear yourself doing that where what is free is awareness because it's not programmed it's not conditioned so like intuitive oftentimes the decisions right decisions are made through intuitive intuition rather than through reason and logic and I remember in university, as an undergraduate, taking a course in algebra. And, you know, one time trying to solve a 
particularly difficult equation and uh, I kept exploring it and trying to think about trying to solve it and I couldn't get anywhere so I gave up, I stopped and the next morning I had the intuition to solve the equation it just came through not through me willing myself to do it through thinking and me trying to get the right answer, the right result, but letting go of, of myself for a while till something else happened, intuitive intelligence, wisdom. So wisdom then, it, uh, and awareness is, is universal intelligence. It's not just a dull state, a kind of zombie-like emptiness. But it's so close to us that we, we don't see it. Just like, are you aware? And of course you know you're aware. It's that close, knowing. But we tend to see knowing as a personal knowing. I know, Ajahn Sumedho, I know, I'm aware. It's me that is the knowing. But as you realize that when you let go of the sense of me and mine, the illusions of yourself as a physical body, as a personality, the knowing is non-personal. Like, as a person, I can know about all kinds of things, you know, because I've been educated and I've traveled and so forth. So, I, I, But this, this kind of knowing, ultimate knowing, awareness, consciousness, isn't personal isn't dependent on whether I'm educated or illiterate. When the mind is silent and awareness is aware of awareness, should one just rest the mind in awareness, or should one use the silent mind to investigate anicca, dukkha, anatta? Just trust your awareness. <laughs> like the, the nature of consciousness is silent. And so, like, you know, I've heard some, I think it was John Cage, a musician, said he, he, he liked certain sounds, but the ultimate was the silence, when there was no sound. The sound of silence, the, you know, so, but when you start experiencing that, when you begin to recognize it, like being aware of being aware, you know, many, many people get frightened by it because emotionally we're, we're programmed for, for not for silence. 
not for awareness. We're programmed for romance, adventure, excitement, you know, for extremities, for elation, for depression. Emotions are, are about, you know, are, have qualities. And I remember when I first had the insight into silence, you know, I, I, you know, I had a strange reaction to it. I had a profound insight into, into silence. But emotionally, I said, I can't do it, it's impossible. You know, I found myself throwing myself on the floor, crying, saying, I can't do it, it's too much. And at the same moment, I had this sense of being, watching this body on the floor, the kuti, crying, saying, I can't do it. Like it was, like it was an out-of-the-body experience, but there was a kind of knowing. But the habit formation, the personality, was, was conditioned for, no, for knowing about things. You know, one wanted permanent silence and permanent happiness. And, you know, when I first started meditation, I was trying, I just wanted to be blissed out, to attain a state of bliss and just stay there forever. And so when I started meditation at Wat Mahatat, section five, you know, about the second or third day, I was, I was teaching English at the Thomasat University. So I could, you know, it was easy for me to, in the morning to go and teach there and then cross the street from Wat Mahatat, from Thomasat to Wat Mahatat. And they gave me a place where I could sit in meditation. And I was sitting there, and I was just, you know, I hadn't been, I just was learning this technique that they taught there. And I was sitting there in the silence. And, you know, I was trying to watch the rise and fall of my belly, my stomach, was their technique. And then somebody slammed the door. I heard this bang, and I went into this state of bliss. Yeah, so that was, I felt this sense of bliss. And just hearing this sound of the door slamming, and, you know, the next day I went back, sat in the same place, Nobody slammed the door. <laughs> and I had, you know, I was wanting to have this bliss that I remembered the, the previous day, you know, because you know, this grasping, this tendency with insight, you know, we, we all go through it. We, we have insight and then we remember, you know, we think that was a really good meditation. I had a really profound insight and then we create a memory, and we, a very beautiful memory. We want to have it again. We grasp the memory. And that's why in its awareness, you know, recognize grasping memory. 
out of ignorance is dukkha, is suffering. The first day when I, when they slammed the door, I was not grasping any memories. And I don't understand how slamming a door could put me into this blissful state. Because <laughs> I certainly wasn't getting it through watching the rise and fall of my belly. I wasn't getting any bliss out of that. But what was it? I don't know. But the conditions, you know, but it was on, you know, it happened spontaneously. It wasn't like I was holding on to some desire to get it or some memory. So when the mind is, when the, when the, you experience silence, recognize and kind of feel this is, this is ultimate reality, this silence, this awareness, where the non-grasping. So it's like, I, I used to instruct people to kind of wide to it, like respecting it, or, you know, it's like being with what you love the most, is this awareness, this Dhamma, this reality. So you, even though it's silent and empty, you abide in it, but then thoughts start coming and so forth, then don't try to get rid of them. Don't try to hang on to the silence as a, as a memory. But abiding in the silence, you have perspective on the vipaka kama that arises. And, you know, so memories or emotions or thoughts or doubts will arise. But your relationship to them is knowing they are when they are what they are, their sankaras arising, ceasing. You remain the knowing rather than the judge or the person taking an interest or being repelled by what the thoughts or memories might, what their quality might be. How do we know that we're making progress in developing awareness? How do, how do we know we're making progress? This idea of progress is a sankara. <laughs> so if you're looking for progress, be aware of that, you know, because on a personal level we want to progress. You know, in modern life we are so b believing in progress. That, you know, we talk, we talk about progress all the time. We want, you know, progress is like an inhalation. It can go so far and then it goes the other way. degeneration, where awareness is aware of progress and degeneration. Just like you're aware of the inhalations like this, and you, how, how, you know, you can't inhale 
eternally. It reaches a peak where you can't inhale anymore, which condition makes the condition for exhaling. Just that pattern alone, the anapanasati, is, you know, a, a paradigm, a pattern for all conditioned phenomena. So when we think of progress, more or less thinking in terms of personal attainments and achievements. So encouragement is to see that it's not about progress, but trusting awareness. And as you recognize the value, the liberation through awareness, which is with you all the time, you know, it's not something that, that you have and then don't have. It's learning to trust it. And then, you, you know, the idea of progress or degeneration are just more or less concepts or ideas or, uh, you know, the thinking mind, you know, trying to comment on, trying to feel that we're getting somewhere, we're not getting anywhere. So even if, you know, if you're sitting in meditation and you feel you're not progressing, that is a thought. You know, I'm, I'm not progressing in my practice. Or you think, my practice is degenerated. I don't have the samadhi I used to have. That's another thought, isn't it? That's a thinking process. So that's why encouragement is to not, to recognize these are thoughts that we create from sakyaditi, from this ego, from the sense of a separate self about progress or degeneration or improving or not improving or getting stuck or any way you want to think it or believe it. But what you trust is the awareness of the thought, the feeling. All conditions are impermanent. Dhamma is not, not personal, it's not about me as a separate entity, as a, you know, a permanent separate physical entity separate from the rest of the universe and the world. The next question refers to something Lumpocha wrote to you when you were in England about not moving forward, not moving backward, not standing still. So where are you? Can you elaborate? Yeah, Lumpocha sent me this note when we were living in Hampstead in the first or second year of in London, the Hampstead Vihara, and uh, Santajito, who many, some of you might know, he died a couple of years ago. He was 
one of his an American monk who disrobed in England when he came to live with me. But he was the bearer of this note. And Santa Gito had a very obvious kind of handwriting script. So uh, before Santa Gito left Thailand, I guess Lung Po Chan had him write out this message on this note paper, just a scrap of paper. But I still have this paper. I preserve this this paper about Sumato, what will he do if you can't go forward, can't go backward, can't go up or down? What do you do? You know, so this is, you know, I felt, you know, this is Lumpa Cha's, you know, teaching me. What do you do? You know, when you, you have to think about, can you take a step toward yourself? You know, can you walk toward yourself or behind yourself? You know, can you, you know, jump, can you go up or down when you can't move, you know, in, in terms of, of a physical movement? You can't walk toward yourself. You can't see your own eyes. But you you know you're seeing because that's the function of the eyes. The function of the jitta or the consciousness doesn't move. It wasn't about moving backward, forward, up or down, or sideways. So it's called the unshakable. You know it, what doesn't isn't anicca, isn't dukkha, isn't anatta, is awareness. The unshakable deliverance of the heart is the aim, you know, is nibbana or realization. Unshakability. Now, emotions are very shakable, as we all know. You know, we can be elated one moment and depress the next. Emotions are all over the place. And, you know, we can cling to ideals, you know, so we find, you know, clinging to ideals, principles, high standards, uh, you know, is a kind of safety, a sense of stability through our clinging to, to these superlative creations, but then we, you know, we, we're not aware of what we're clinging. We're clinging to, to something that doesn't have any life in it. That is just some, you know, condition, some sankara at its very best. And it's mental. So it doesn't feel anything. So when you, when you're insulted or you lose your job or, your beloved cat dies, you know, all the ideals don't really solve any kind of emotional feelings or results. Because, you know, ideals don't have emotions. 
But these forms, these physical forms, is all about feeling, it's sensitivity. So, you know, like ideal, political idealism in my lifetime, just the, the you know, like communism was, you know, was a, is based on ideals and how things should be. So like the, you know, the Marxian, you know, intellectually it's very interesting, Marx's teaching, Karl Marx's teaching about communism. Intellectually it's very, you know, interesting and, and ideally we can, you know, that's to agree that that's the way things should be, equality, you know, no rich, no poor, everybody's the same. And, uh, you know, it's based on the ideal of sharing wealth and, and uh, making everybody so that there's no rich or poor, everybody's equal to everyone else. And then we see, you know, imposing an ideal on a mass of people, like what happened in the Soviet Union. You know, it's a brilliant ideal, but it is an ideal, it doesn't feel anything. So one had to use tyrannical methods to try to impose this ideal on people who resisted it. So, you know, and then getting back to the law of karma, to do good, you receive good. If you use a good means, then you get a good result. You know, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have the perfect society based on communist ideals, you have to use benevolent means. You know, if you use tyranny to force ideals down someone's throat, they experience tyranny, they don't experience the ideals. Like with Sila, for example, I might have good intentions, and I say, you've got to take the five precepts, and I keep shoving them at you, and, and, and tyrannizing you with my orders and commands that you keep the five precepts, what you're going to feel emotionally is tyranny. You're being pressured, forced. Even though, what, you know, five precepts is skillful and good, but the, the means of informing is tyranny. It's lack of respect for the individual. And it's me, Ajahn Sumedho, forcing my views about morality on you. And what is the result as you feel frightened, tyrannized, resistant, rebellious? Even though what I'm trying to force on you in itself is wholesome. This is what feeling is like, you know. It's, we say, uh, you know, we talk about love and, and, uh, you know, how we should love each other. And then we, but if you don't believe what I say or you don't go along with what I, what I want you to, then I don't love you anymore. You know, what kind of, that's condition, you know, if you obey me and do what I want, then, 
you get my love, otherwise you don't. That's not metta, that's conditioned kind of blackmailing, kind of intimidating somebody. So you can use love and, and morality and all these high-minded concepts to tyrannize people. And that's why the law of karma is such a good reflection. You know, if you want, if you want to have a good result, you have to use the good means. If you want peace, you have to use peaceful means. You're not going to get peace through making war or violence. You know, so we talk about peace all the time in the world. You know, so, but we make, you know, so trying to get rid of the people that don't want to be peaceful the way we want them to is no way to, to realize peace. And of course, as I've said before, we, we realize peace is our true nature. You know, it's not something that, and it awakens the sense of peace in individuals is, is a gentle process, not a tyrannical one. You say we are conscious all the time. So what happens when we're asleep? What happens when we're asleep? Do you die when you're sleeping? Are you dead? So like waking, you know, we're awake now. And we have, our senses are operating, we're seeing, you're seeing, you're listening, and so forth, you're feeling. The senses have their objects. But when you're asleep, there are no, you know, the, the senses are asleep. They're not, they're not, they have no objects. But there's still consciousness. You don't die and then be reborn in the morning. So, you know, like sleep consciousness is very restful. If you had good sleep, deep sleep, you feel very rested. We love sleep. We love to sleep. Because then, you know, we're not being irritated by objects of senses. But in the waking state, we're always having, you know, this, this constant impingement on seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. We're always thinking, judging, criticizing, liking or disliking. This is, this is exhausting because it takes a lot of effort and energy. So when we go to sleep, you know, the senses don't operate anymore. They're, they're, your eyes are closed, you're not listening to sounds or smelling odors or, you know, getting caught up in, in thoughts or emotions. Everything's at rest. So it's peaceful. And then we dream. And dreams are, you know, they're images. 
And of course, the dreaming state is, uh, you know, it doesn't have the certainties of the waking state where we, you know, we're conditioned for the waking state. The dream state can, you can travel all over the universe in a dream or, you know, you can, but you're still conscious. The consciousness is working, but the, the, uh, the senses, there's just thinking and imagining taking place. Then in the waking state, you know, there's, there's this, your feeling, sense, you seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. I remember in, as a Samanera in Nongkai, I used to have the, these dreams. When I was in Nongkai, I'd go into a coffee shop and I'd order some beautiful pastry. And then, you know, I'd wake up before I could eat it. (laughs) And I used to wish, I wish I could stay with the dream state. Because, you know, I wasn't getting pastries in the monastery. (laughs) This was like a, you know, tasting this, eating this delicious pastry would, would have been quite enjoyable in the dream. So consciousness is not, you know, isn't about, you know, you know, oftentimes this waking state is it's referred to as illusory because it's changing and in the dream state definitely it's illusory but it, and there's conditions operating you know you're you're always a somebody doing something or saying something going someplace but it's imagery you know it's not it's not a real person. It's a it's a dreamed person. Then in the waking state, you know, this is where we meditate and is uh, being awake and aware, but we're still caught in the illusions of ourself as these forms. You know, that's what the illusion. What it means the. This is a realm of illusions because we believe we are the the body, the emotions, the thoughts, the memories. So to wake up from this illusion is not to annihilate the conditions, but to be aware all conditions are impermanent. Dhamma is, is, has no separate personal quality at all. Dhamma is unitive, whole and perfect. What is bhavana? What is bhavana? That's the word, that's a poly word. We say, you know, in, in Theravada Buddhism we talk about 
Dana Sila Bhavana is a path. Dana, as I was saying before, is a generosity and uh, unselfish generosity. <laughs> Sila is morality through responsibility, through action and speech. Bhavana is meditation. And so the word bhavana really means developing the Eightfold Path. So Rungpa Cha used to say, bhavana begins with stream entry, with awareness of the path. Which is interesting because, you know, we all think we're meditating and, you know, through concentration practices, which, you know, is, you know, generally assumed to be bhavana. But I, I'm, I'm not quite sure myself, but bhavana, you know, in this sequence of dhanasila bhavana is, is through this foundation of dhana, of generosity, unselfish sharing what we have with others. The, then the sila, the res- taking responsibility for action and speech. That's the foundation for developing the path, which is mindfulness. And it's interesting, you know, to see like the, the first sermon of the Buddha was to the five disciples, you know, who are colleagues, friends of the ascetic Gotama, who developed all kinds of um, concentration practices, but who had still not been liberated, because the basic illusion of a self was still unchallenged. You know, so no matter how much, you know, refined concentration you get through through uh, the delusion of a separate self, it's still not the developing the path, where the path is seen through breaking through the illusions of Sakya Ditti, the self-view, Sila Bhattabharamasa, the cultural, social conditioning, and Vitikicca, the doubts that come through heedlessly, blindly grasping the thoughts 